0: fastest recap that i can possibly do and i'm not saying it's going to be fast but it's going to be as fast as i know how sorry merv if anybody writes on their questionnaire shorter sermons i know who it is so it's okay um exodus right second book of the bible and we began wrestling through it um, because in my own study the year before i came across uh which we're going to talk about here this morning um, as we recap. But I came across a section in there that I thought, this is so relevant for my life and for our life right now. And so I thought, let's wrestle through this. Let's learn about the history of our faith. Let's learn about the history of Scripture, why God is trustworthy. And then by the time we get to 31 and half an hour, or 10 minutes, I hope, uh, then we'll study that through together. So as Exodus kind of, well, I guess I should say this is Genesis nears its ending. What we know is that God has given Abraham a a covenant. Anybody remember what that covenant was? Through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Yeah. So God said, Abraham, I'm going to use you and your family to bless all the world so that all the world would know who God is. And so we begin to see that kind of starting to unfold, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob has a bunch of sons and they become the 12 tribes of Israel, but one of, those, one of those sons is Joseph. And Joseph, now this is not where it's good or right. This is where we take the Bible, we read the Bible, and we see that not every bit of the history of the Bible is trying to declare that it is good and right, but that it is true. Joseph's father favors Joseph above his other brothers, and that's not right, and that's not good. But also, how to respond to those injustices is is important. And and in their wisdom, the brothers decide, hey, we're going to send him off into slavery because that'll teach our dad. Well, actually, they tell their dad that he was killed by a wild animal because they don't want to admit what they've done. And they send Joseph off into slavery into Egypt and think, okay, it's done, it's over. But as we learn at the end of, of Genesis in chapter 50, there's a key verse in the Bible where Joseph says, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Is even in the midst of humanity's wicked plans, God says, I'm still at work and I'm still a God of redemption and I'm still in control. And so through Joseph, he ends up doing some incredible miraculous things and Joseph gets all the way till he's second in line to Pharaoh. God uses him through some, some dreams and, and different things, not only to save the Egyptian people, but to save that entire part of the world because there's a massive drought that hits, but God revealed to Joseph how to get through that. Well, a long time passes between that very end of, Ex, end of Genesis into Exodus. And the scripture says that a new Pharaoh arose, one who did not know Joseph. Now, the point is not that he didn't know who Joseph was, but that he no longer acknowledged the things that Joseph had done to bless his people. And so the Egyptian people decide, we're going to enslave this whole nation. Now, maybe you have missed the irony in all of that, but Joseph goes into Egypt to slave, frees everybody and saves everybody, only for the nation to go back into slavery again. Well, they go into slavery, but the people cry out to God, and they say, God, we need, we need rescue from this oppression. And that's where Moses comes on the scene. And There's a point where the Hebrews are growing so rapidly that the Egyptians are, they get fearful. They go, man, if, if, if they join an enemy against us, we're sure to be destroyed because there's just too many. So they begin to have orders to kill all baby boys. But people don't really listen to him very well. But eventually it comes to the fact that they just start going and if they see a child that's under two years old, they just throw them in the Nile and just let them drown. The injustice that's happening, God intervenes. And, and so Moses is born and Moses uh, by his mother and sister is rescued, put in a little basket and kind of placed in the Nile River to float there among the reeds. And, and who would find him but Pharaoh's daughter? one person who knows what her father has said to do but the scripture says that she's filled with compassion and and she takes him and rescues him and raises him in her own home and he is and he grows up as an egyptian but as we kind of continue to read what we see is that moses is very confused about his identity he knows he's a Hebrew, but he's living with the Egyptians. He sees his brothers and sisters being treated horribly and in slavery. And there's a story about him intervening, and, and he kills a, an Egyptian that's beating a, a Hebrew. And he thinks, I've, I'm, I'm doing something good. But the Hebrew people turn their back on him, and they say, well, who are you that you're going to rescue us? You live with the Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And the news gets out about this and so Moses has to flee and he goes to the people of Midian and now he's not an Egyptian, he's not a Hebrew, and he's not a Midianite. Now he's just all by himself. Here's where it gets real relevant to us in our world right now. You ever felt alone? Ever felt like no one sees you? That you don't know where you belong? Well, the rest of this book and ultimately the rest of the Bible as a whole is about where your belonging actually lies, where your identity truly is. God calls to Moses and he says, I've called you to go and to rescue my people, the Israelites, out of slavery. And through something that we call the 10 plagues, there's warnings that Moses gives to the Pharaoh saying, God says, let my people go, but Pharaoh refuses. And and we talked about a very difficult text there where it actually says God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And you kind of think, well, that doesn't make any sense. If God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh's not going to let the people go. So how does this make sense? But as we wrestled through with it, we saw that what God is teaching the people is that he is faithful and that the Israelites will be released from slavery only when God ordains, not when Pharaoh ordains. But God alone is in control. And this, of course, leads us to the Passover A very pivotal moment in Scripture. There's an explanation of a sacrificial lamb. The sacrificial lamb would save the the Israelites, but the Egyptians would not be saved. And we talked about how this is the foreshadowing of the one true Passover lamb, Jesus, who is to come. We get to see Scripture and history, and we get to see God's plan of redemption and rescue Not just for the Israelites in that moment, but for each of us from the consequences of sin. That we might have hope in eternity with God. Because of the one true Passover lamb. We read about the Red Sea and God's judgment on the Egyptians. The the people walked through on the Red Sea, but when the Egyptians tried to follow, God closed the Red Sea in over them. We read about Manna falling from heaven in the wilderness because there's no food. We read about water coming out of a rock because there's no water. And then we read about the Ten Commandments audibly given to the people from God. We spent a lot of time looking at those commands, and some of them seem a little bit strange or unusual in our context, so far removed. But as we studied them, what we saw is that the people, the Hebrew people were supposed to stand out as completely separate and unique from all other people. They were supposed to represent God to the nations. They were to bring the blessing of Abraham to all nations by how they lived. They were called to love one another, to honor one another, to care for, but there was also justice so that you couldn't abuse another person, so that you couldn't cause harm. And the consequences seem very serious to us in our time now, and we're going to talk about that a little bit again this morning with the Sabbath as an example. But all of these are meant to point us to a God who loves us and knows what's best for us, and and we don't. The whole point up till now has been God saying to the people, do you trust me? In slavery, do you trust me? In the wilderness, do you trust me? When the Egyptians are closing in on you, do you trust me? When you have no food and no water, do you trust me? And so let me flip that to us now. Is when you get a phone call from the doctor and you find out that you have cancer, do you trust God? When you get a phone call and you hear that a loved one has passed on or been in an accident, do you trust God? Or do we only trust God when circumstances are what we think they should be? You hear me say it all the time, but Romans 8 talks about that God has what's best in store for us, but what his best and what our best is are often two different things. Because God is concerned about our salvation. God wants us to have eternal life. He's not so much worried about our comfort here and now. Not that he doesn't care about that but his concern is something far greater. Just like a parent with a child is you don't just give in to everything your child wants every moment because you want to you be a nice, kind father. You wouldn't be a loving father or mother if you gave them everything they wanted because you know best. And so that's where it doesn't, do we, do we sit back and go, God, in the midst of this hurt, in the midst of this pain, in this midst of this circumstance that I don't understand what you are doing or why, do I trust you? Do I know that you love me and that you are with me? I hope that's what you remember as you read through Exodus. That when your circumstances are awful, when you don't have clear picture of answer, why are these things happening? That you can look at this and you can say, God, even in this, I trust you and I will let you lead and let you guide. This leads us to chapter 31. Just before I read the first 11 verses, this is is how long it's taken me, and I'm sorry. That was pretty quick, though, I thought. Um, I remember snowboarding with John uh, up at the top of sunshine. It was very risky for me, not so much for him. Um, And I remember we were sitting in kind of a line, and and we were, well, John was clearly reading ahead, and he knew what was coming. and, And he said he couldn't wait for this chapter, and I think a few of you in the room here will know why once we read it. But there's a unique difference between the the specific couple of people that are mentioned here and what God has called them to do that maybe you will identify with in a very unique way. And I think it's actually an incredible passage that reminds us that every single one of us, regardless of gifting and purpose, or regarding of gifting, has the same purpose and that God is working in all of us. So here's what it says, 31.1 to 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men, ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, all the furnishings of the tent and the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense and the altar of the burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron and the priests, sorry, Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. And the anointing oil and the fragrant incense of the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. I forgot to mention one thing is we also looked at the tabernacle, right? Maybe you remember the video we played a couple of times and looking at the various pieces of furniture and all these things that God shows to Moses and the intricacies of it all. And it all has symbolism and meaning. We talked about that, but here now, with Betzalel, is God says to Moses, I'm, I call out by name, Betzalel, to accomplish these things that I've shown you, Moses. Now, maybe you struggle with, a, well, let's say it this way. How many of you, like me, your artistic ability ends with stick figures? Okay, so like, Smanga asked me the other day, it's like, how do you draw a face? And I went, you know what? Your mom went and took an art class. Why don't you ask her? Um, <laughs> There are certain skills and abilities that, like, if you see something and you're, like, you're, you're to draw it and you're just, like, I, that's not going to happen. Like, I'm, I can't make that. I can't do that. When I hang out with Randy Tarchuk and he goes, well, we'll just fix that. I go, what do you mean? I don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> there are people that are called in certain ways, and, and Betzalel is one of them. But he's called to do a specific task at a specific purpose. But more, I don't know if importantly is right but more of note in this is that actually in all of Scripture, Bezalel is the very first person who is explicitly stated as given the Spirit of God. I'm glad you found that interesting, because so did I. You know, you could think, like, like, Joseph clearly has the Spirit of God, Moses clearly has the Spirit of God, and it's implied and talked about, but it's never explicitly stated. I think sometimes in churches especially, we look at it and we go, I'm not on stage, I'm not preaching or doing music or something like this, I'm not at the back doing whatever it might be, and and do my gifts matter? Well, the first person in all of Scripture that is uniquely given or explicitly stated that he's uniquely given the Holy Spirit to accomplish a task is a craftsman. Do you love working with your hands? Like, maybe there's a few of you here that you have a gift that few of us do. But maybe you see it in a way where you kind of look at this and go, well, does this matter for the church? I'm going to argue for the rest of this morning, that matters deeply. God has called Bethsalel by name and filled him with the Spirit of God. My mind was just blown. I wrote, it's not a preacher, it's not a teacher, it's not an upfront leader, it's a craftsman who is given the spirit of God. The truth is that God calls all of us to important and meaningful work. He has gifted us uniquely in the body of Christ, and we talked about this previous, but I want to say it again, is no one job is more important than any other. They are all valuable. We looked at 1 Corinthians, and we looked at the body of Christ as the analogy, and, and Paul's saying, like, if the foot wasn't there, the body wouldn't work right. If the arm isn't there, or, or he uses a funny analogy and saying if everyone was an eye, how weird and dysfunctional would the body be? In one of our young adult Bible studies, uh, the speaker ended up talking about this passage in Corinthians, and, and he said, if you were walking along a beach and you came across a foot, disconnected from the body, you would never sit there and think, oh, that's okay. The body's probably fine wherever it is. You would know something awful happened. The body is not whole. Well, the scriptures give us many different lists of spiritual gifts, none of them exhaustive. But it gives us many lists of gifts to say all of these people are to come to work together for the importance of the body so that the body is healthy. In our survey, I asked you a question, is do you know what your spiritual gift is? If you know what your spiritual gift is, then here's my other question, is are you using it for the health of the body to accomplish the purposes of God? If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, I would love nothing more than to sit down and talk with you and help you see how God has uniquely called and gifted you for ministry. It might sound scary, like, man, I'm not going to preach a sermon. Well, you don't have to, not unless you fire me, if, uh, you know, Mervyn gets a shorter way. No, I'm just kidding, Merv. You're all called differently and uniquely, but to accomplish the same purpose and the same thing. Betzalel and Aholiab are called and gifted by God to accomplish the building of the tabernacle. And again, we talked about this earlier, but the tabernacle sometimes, uh, or in the temple later on, is sometimes looked at this like, well, why did they worship there and why did they offer sacrifice there? Well, we talked about the reasons for that, but now think of it as is the first person explicitly stated in the Bible, given God's spirit, is to build that. Do you think that that's important then? think that it matters? Do you think it's accidental that God just goes, oh, I forgot to say that I put my spirit in, in Joseph? Like, it's very intentional. Do you have a gift to build, to make things? Do you identify yourself with Bezalel looking at this going, man, I, I, can, I can use my hands to build to make things, to, to use the skills that God has given me, not only for myself, but for the benefit of the church. That's great news. One of my friends who's a pastor in Calgary uh, recently got to go to Europe and they and he's a super art nerd. And I mean that very lovingly. Um, but I saw a lot of the pictures that he posted online and the reflection of his thoughts as he sat and watched what beautiful art and specifically what beautiful art in churches did to kind of stir his soul and if i'm honest with you i'm like what are you talking about i don't get it but there are some who do and if you look at the history of the church, there's been sculptors and painters. And have you ever noticed that the most world famous sculptors and painters all did things that had to do with the church? You don't think God uniquely called and gifted men and women to accomplish things for his purposes? That people would look up at the Sistine Chapel and they wouldn't go, Man, that artist, that painter, he was amazing. That they would look at this and go, Somebody was gifted by God to build, to make, to create. As John and I were standing there, when I say standing, I mean he was probably standing, I was probably sitting, because I'd probably fallen. When he was talking about this, I saw him get fired up to go, that's where I identify. That's the kind of person that I am. And I hope for the rest of you that have that, that this is you too. Dorothy Sayers once wrote, and this might be very familiar to some of you, she's written a book and talking about the importance of of work with our hands, and she says this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. She argues against that and says what the church should be telling him is this. The very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Just think that through. God has called you with whatever your skills are to use all your skills for his glory. That you would be a person of integrity. That you wouldn't cut corners, but that you would do your work and that you would do it well. I've told this story before, some of you are new this morning, is the best evangelist, I shouldn't say the best, the most effective evangelist that I've ever talked with was not an evangelist, but he was a piano tuner. And he was good at it. But he went into people's homes and he went, how can I use my gift for the sake of the gospel? And again and again, he would go into people's homes with the sole purpose of your piano will be perfect when I am done because that is what God has called me to, but he has also called me to something else. That you would know who Christ is. We want to ce- be a church that celebrates people's gifts. Not to the exaltation of the individual, but to the exaltation of God. You can use your abilities, the gifts that God has given you to honor him, to bless your brothers and sisters in the church, to use your work for something that will last beyond just 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years, but that will last for all of eternity. Now, if you remember back in August, I spent all of August preaching on stewardship, and this is why because we were going to get to Exodus 31. We were going to talk about somebody who was called by name, gifted by the Spirit, but now he has the opportunity to say, yes, I'm going to build, and I'm going to do it for your glory, and I'm going to do it with the best of my abilities, or somebody who could look at this and go, well, is it really that important? Well, thank the Lord, Bezalel and Aholiab looked at this and said, we're going to do everything we can to steward well what God has given us. The tabernacle was built. regardless of whether you're a carpenter, a painter, a doctor, a housekeeper, an administrator, whatever else you might think of, as you are called to the church to accomplish his purposes. We are one family. Now, here's the thing why this, I think, is very, very important, especially in our culture, is identity. as I think most of the time, we determine our identity based on what we do, not who we are. So let me tell it to you straight, really quickly. If you are a child of God, if you have confessed Christ as Lord and put him as your Savior, then it doesn't matter what you do so long as you do it faithfully. Your identity is in being a child of God, not being in a carpenter, painter, doctor, housekeeper, administrator. Those are just things that you do. That's not who you are. We live now in this time where people are very confused about identity, and we see it in multiple ways all over the place. I'm not happy with this part of me, so I want to change. I'm not happy with who you've created me, and so I want to change it. And God goes, I didn't make any mistakes. I created you exactly as I have called you. That flies in the face of culture today, but actually it's the most loving thing possible because God knows to what he's called you for. And he's created you for that purpose, for that thing. But ultimately, all of that is to bring honor and glory to God, to bring blessing, the blessing of Abraham on all nations, that they would know who God is. The next few verses, which we're not going to read, I'm just going to highlight them here. It might seem strange that we go from uh, Bezalel and Aholiab to all of a sudden the Sabbath. Why are we going back to the Sabbath. Well, here's what it says. Kenneth Harris wrote this. He says this. Remembering the Sabbath by keeping it holy is integral to Israel's life as the people who are sanctified or made holy by the Lord. This passage grounds Israel's Sabbath observance both in creation, where Israel shares—or which Israel shares with all mankind, and in God's special choice of Israel. Sometimes you might look at it like the Sabbath was just about doing no work on one day. But the Sabbath was about a holy calling for a people to say, well, let's put it this way. The people, their value when they were in slavery was only accomplished in how many bricks they could produce. That was their only tangible quality of what value they had. What does God say? Your value has nothing to do with what you can accomplish. Your value has to do with I have chosen you. I have called you by name honoring the Sabbath. And it actually even says uh, in verse 15 or 16 there, it says that if you don't observe this, you're going to be put to death. And it's kind of like, this seems real harsh. But the point is because God was saying, you're not to get sucked into thinking the way you used to, that the way that your ancestors used to, that your worth is based in what you can produce. Your worth is based in who you are. So you slow down and you rest and you don't accomplish and you bathe in the truths of scripture that you are a child of God, that God loves you desperately, and that he sent Jesus to the cross that you might have salvation. I don't know about you, but our world is so busy that if I don't meditate on those things, I don't think about those things. This is why we have Sunday. This is why we come together and why we read scripture, why we sing songs is because we're preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're reminding us of who we are and how that is more important than what we do. Man, our culture right now, your occupation, your identity, whatever type of identity is the most important thing about you. And I would actually say that culture has that right, but they're exploring it in a very wrong way. Your identity is the most important thing about you, but your identity is that you're a child of God, that you were called by him to be in relationship with you. And like I said, the good news is that the work that he has called you to do, some of that right here and right now, while you do it well and with all your ability, it's only gonna last for a little while after you die. But what will last forever is the work that God has called you to from an eternal perspective. We wanna be a church that love each other that lift each other up, that encourage each other, that discipline each other, that help each other. Because our goal is that the world would see and know who Christ is. Not that we would have a bigger bank account. Not that we would have a bigger car in the driveway. Not that we would be able to sit down at lunch and compare our clothing, compare our career, whatever it might be, with somebody else. Because those things all fade. Those things will all be no more one day. But what we do for eternity will matter. Let me say this as we close and move to communion. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. He offered himself as the sacrificial lamb that can pay the penalty that we owe, but yet we could never pay. Jesus has called you and chosen you to be part of his family. That is who you are. But he has not only called you to save you, he has called you and gifted you so that the world would see who Christ is. As we move forward in the months ahead, our church is really going to wrestle with how can we come together as a family to accomplish the call of the gospel on us there are some who see that and are trying to do it and there are some who maybe have lost sight of that that's their purpose and meaning and we want to call you back to that so that together united we can accomplish far more than a handful of individuals on their own if you read a section like this and you go man I can use my unique gifts and talents to serve God yes you can amen praise the Lord now, let's figure out how to do that. This is one of the reasons why we want to do potluck together and sit together because as we get to know each other, we'll be able to call out in each other where we see people's gifts and abilities and passions. We'll be able to encourage one another for the ministry calling that God has put on you. That's our goal. That's our hope. Let's pray. God, as in just a few moments we turn to communion and reflect on the cross, we want to do that now as well. God, thank you that Jesus came to the cross, that he offered himself in place of us. There's no greater truth than the gift of salvation. But God, it doesn't end there, and I think sometimes we only think of it that far. You haven't just called us to save us, but you've called us to use us for eternal purposes. And there is nothing more important than your calling on our lives. As we obey your calling, we will love each other more effectively than we ever could. We will serve one another. We will reach out into the world and we'll make a difference. Not because of my own ability, but because you have created in each of us skills and abilities to work together to accomplish the gospel. So God, may we do that as a church family in these coming weeks ahead and months ahead. Would we become people who are committed and faithful to the calling that you have put on us, whatever that is. So, God, I pray that each of us would examine our own hearts, that we'd examine our lives and figure out where am I gifted? What has God called me to? How can I do that within the context of the local body, the church, to reach people for Christ? May we see that in this text, God. May we see that in our own lives. And may we see that in our church family. Amen. We're just going to flip real quick to 1 Corinthians. We have a little bit of a problem in that I did not get communion people because my elder is away. So if if two people are willing to just kind of help out with communion here with the passing of the elements, that would be wonderful. I got a new Bible and now I can't find anything. Let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. It says this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This last supper moment, the disciples with Jesus, this is what we're trying to kind of recreate. Is while we have communion once a month together, we want to take it further than just a few minutes, but we want to take it into that room and sit and have community with one another. We are one family. We're called to love each other. We're called to love each other the way that Christ loved his disciples and gave up his life for them. Continues to call us in verse 27 to examine, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you remember if a couple of years back, we studied through 1 Corinthians, and the issue here was that they would gather together in honor of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They would gather together, they would remind themselves, but... They started to lose focus of that and people started to just eat everything in front of them and the poor people that would show up later, they would be ignored. And Paul's calling them to say, you are one body, you are one family. You can't treat your brother or your sister that way. You need to treat them with respect and honor. And so part of what we do here is going to be remembering Christ's death that only through his body on the cross and his blood as the sacrificial lamb only in that do we find forgiveness and salvation but then that we're called to something more than just reflection on that but to work together to accomplish that and so that's what we're going to do afterwards so i'm going to pray for these elements we're going to hand them out we're going to take them together and then to conclude i'm going to pray for lunch together and i hope that you do stay and i hope that you sit with someone you don't know And you get to know them, and you get to encourage them. Let's pray. God, as we in a moment here hand out the elements, as we hand out this little cracker that represents your body broken for us, would you help us to reflect on the truth that only through Jesus do we find salvation? It is not in our abilities. It is not in our anything. It's in our desperate need of you. So thank you that Jesus went to the cross. As we pass this out now, may we consider the cross.